0: Open your Bibles to Job chapter 28. What does Job say about the fear of God here? Job 28, beginning in verse 12, through the end of the chapter. But where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. The deep says it is not in me, And the sea says, it is not with me. Pure gold cannot be given in exchange for it, nor can silver be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold or glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for articles of fine gold. Coral and crystal are not to be mentioned. And the acquisition of wisdom is above that of pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. Where then does wisdom come from? And where is the place of understanding? Thus it is hidden from the eyes of all living, and concealed from the birds of the sky. Abaddon and death say, With our ears we have heard a report of it. God understands its way, and He knows its place. For He looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When He imparted weight to the wind and meted out the waters by measure. When He set a limit for the rain and a course for the thunderbolt. Then He saw it and declared it. He established it And also searched it out. And to man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. Now I invite you to turn in your Bibles over to Proverbs chapter 1. You've seen the testimony of Job to the Inestimable value of wisdom and where that wisdom comes from. It rests in the knowledge, especially the fear of God. Please follow with me as I read Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction in wise behavior, righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the naive, to the youth, knowledge, and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase in learning." And a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel, to understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. We've commenced a study of the book of Proverbs. It's not going to be a verse by verse study, but rather we're going to be considering major themes in the book of Proverbs, but we're spending some time in chapter one. This is the prologue, this sets the stage for everything that Solomon's going to be saying. In basic themes that he develops in the book of Proverbs, and various statements that he makes of wisdom throughout the 31 chapters of this book. And in our first message, we considered the inspired penman of Proverbs, that is Solomon. We considered Solomon's unparalleled wisdom. He had wisdom like no other, born of woman in this world, we saw the sources of Solomon's unparalleled wisdom. It comes to him from God, and likewise was demonstrated to him by his godly parents. We saw the fame of his unparalleled wisdom. It went to the ends of the earth. In fact, he became so famous that kings and wise men came from far and wide, wise women that come and seek out his wisdom. And then the record of Solomon's unparalleled wisdom is found in the books that Uh, carry his name, the book of Proverbs, especially the book of Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and even uh, a psalm or two in the Psalter. And then we saw the focus of Solomon's unparalleled wisdom. It is to the young and to the naive. And then we considered in our second message last week, as we consider the prologue, our need for wisdom and the fear of the Lord. We saw the primary persons addressed. We spent some time exploring who they are in the book of Proverbs and other places. They are the naive, that is, the inexperienced, and the undiscerning, and those who are young. The young tend to be naive. And we looked at what that meant and why this book is so important to be read, to be digested, and to be practiced by the young And we looked at the practical purpose of Proverbs in in verses 2 through 4. That is, that we might know, we might discern, we might receive instruction. It's for the giving of prudence, the giving of knowledge, that we'll be seeking understanding and acquiring wisdom from it. And then we looked at the precious promise offered in verses 5 and 6, and that is that we would gain This instruction. We would gain this knowledge. We would become wise. Now, this morning in verse 7, we come to the pious principle that's inherent in all true wisdom. And we're going to be looking at verse 7 both this Lord's day and the next time that I preach. Pastor Randy will be ministering the word. God willing, next Lord's Day, as I'll be gone uh, out of town for a few days this week. Proverbs 1 and verse 7. Let's look at it again. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And We're going to look at this verse and ask three questions of it. One, today, and two, next time. We're going to seek to answer the question, at least in a cursory, summary fashion, this morning, what is the fear of the Lord? And then next time, what is the practical and observable impact of the fear of the Lord upon our lives? And then thirdly, what promises belong to those who fear the Lord? So this morning, let's seek to consider this pious principle inherent in wisdom. Now brother we need to take a step back and look at the big picture here that all biblical instruction is founded upon a pious principle that is pious that is to make us like Christ, to make us like the Lord that we might Walk in the pathways of righteousness for His name's sake. You see, that principle is first to bring us to Christ, because there is no wisdom apart from Christ. In Him are hidden all the, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We must know Christ if we're going to be wise in our thinking, wise in our living. So that pious principle is to bring us to Christ and then to equip us With the necessary tools to live the Christian life. Paul makes this plain in in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. Paul writes that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And then he discusses what these sacred writings are in their essence and what they produce in the life of those who come to faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And this pious principle, I believe, is expressed plainly in Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. True knowledge, you see, is grounded in and it grows out of the fear of the Lord. In fact, we have no true wisdom without this knowledge. We don't know what we should know. We don't know as we should know. We don't know anything as it really is without the fear of the Lord. We may be able to relate to this world according to the conventions of worldly wisdom. But we really don't know anything as it is truly known without the fear of the Lord. And for this reason... The fear of the Lord, Solomon says, is the beginning of wisdom. And once we begin to attain wisdom, we don't leave the fear of the Lord and move on. No, the fear of the Lord is the beginning, middle, and end of true wisdom. It should not be surprising that the fear of the Lord is a major theme. And I would argue it's the major theme in Proverbs. In chapter 9 and verse 10, Solomon restates this pious principle, identifying the glorious person whom we must know if we are to know truly anything in the world. Proverbs 9 and verse 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And so when he says a man of understanding in verse 5 will acquire wise counsel, he's one who knows the Lord. He has understanding because he knows the living God. You see, the fear of the Lord is foundational to life in Christ and to all true understanding and relating to this world in a way that pleases God that does good to our neighbor, that enables us to enjoy the richness in this life that God intends for us. The fear of God, brethren, is that basic, and therefore being that basic, it is that important. The Bible says much about the importance of our need for and how we demonstrate this crucial component of wisdom. He is surely right... Who observes that, quote, there is no higher wisdom than to fear God, as there is no true wisdom till he is feared. This is both Alpha and Omega in wisdom. The very first and indeed the principal thing to be installed into all men's minds is a religious sense of the divine majesty and an awful regard towards him. I don't think that's overstated. So teaches both the Old and the New Testaments, and I trust this we will see as we proceed in our study. Because this grace of the Christian life is so little addressed in pulpits today, it is all the more important that we dwell upon it. There are some books out there on the fear of God. Pastor Albert Martin's more recent book on the forgotten fear, I would encourage you to take up and read. He does a wonderful job of ransacking the Bible on this subject and bringing its practical implications to bear upon the reader. In past generations, when the church was arguably healthier spiritually, people of the world commonly regarded Christians as God-fearing people. True Christians then humbly embraced and they, they sought to honor this title by living in the fear of God. But things are a bit different today. Today's Casual compromise, come as you are, Christianity increasingly shows that the church is uncomfortable with the holiness and other worldliness characterized in our predecessors. A worldly church is hostile to the fear of God for the same reason the world is antagonistic to Christ and to true Christians. This is because both are enemies of God's holiness. It makes people feel uncomfortable to be around a person who fears the Lord. Because the, that reality, reality is all-encompassing in his life. The Bible's telling verdict of us before God, by His mercy in Christ, opens our eyes to see this truth and to see the kingdom of God is this. When Paul arraigns the whole world as guilty before God, what does he conclude with? That there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the the telling consequence of living in this world without Christ. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So this morning, let's seek to address ourselves to the question, What is the fear of the Lord? And what is its practical impact upon us, especially upon our thinking? Solid writers have sought to answer these important questions in their definitions. And I suggest a few. Charles Bridges writes, But what is this fear of the Lord? It is an affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to his father's law. His wrath is so bitter and his love so sweet that hence springs an earnest desire to please him and Because of the danger of coming short from his own weakness and temptations, a holy watchfulness and fear that he might not sin against him. This enters into every exercise of the mind, every object of life. So writes Charles Bridges. George Lawson puts it this way. The fear of the Lord so often recommended in Proverbs is not that fear which hath torment in it and is excluded by love, but that fear which is joined by faith and keeps it from degenerating into presumption, whilst faith keeps fear from sinking into despondency. It is a lively impression of the excellency of God upon the soul, whereby a man is disposed to walk before Him unto all well-pleasing, and to put far away everything provoking and offensive to the eyes of His glory. It is therefore justly made to signify the whole religion in the heart and life of man." one more, Ralph Wardlaw. He writes, the fear of Jehovah is a phrase which may fairly be interpreted as meaning true religion, all the principles of godliness. This fear of the Lord is in invariable union with love and invariable proportion to it. You truly fear God in proportion as you truly love Him. It is founded in knowledge, in the knowledge of the divine character, especially as it is revealed in His Word, and more especially still in the Gospel, where the lovely and blessed harmony of all the divine perfections is manifested in the work of man's salvation." Albert Martin boils the impact of this comprehensive grace down in this brief but pregnant statement, which I think he borrows from maybe Sinclair Ferguson. The fear of God is the soul of godliness. Such are some of the descriptions of the fear of God by several uninspired writers. Now we are led to ask, well, what does the Holy Spirit in Scripture say about this essential grace in the Christian life? So we're going to seek to answer the questions, what fundamental elements are essential to the fear of the Lord? First, the fear of the Lord is grounded in reverence for the majesty of God. This is implied in the song of Moses. God had just delivered them, delivered the children of Egypt, the uh, children of Israel from Egypt, from Pharaoh, from his armies, delivered them ultimately from their gods. Moses says in Exodus 15 and verse 11. Who is like thee among the gods, O Lord? Who is like thee, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? In other words, he's saying, To whom may we compare you, O Lord? You array the pantheon of the world and all of their supposed gods. Who is to be compared to you, O Lord? What is true of you is not true of them. You're majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders. That can't be said of their gods. But brethren, there's an important question that we have to ask ourselves. Do we know this God? We cannot stand in awe of a God whose majesty we are ignorant of. We must know Him to echo that statement of Moses. Therefore, our fear of God will be proportionate to our knowledge of His majesty, power, and glory. We won't have flippant views of God if we know Him truly. David, as a man after God's own heart, testifies of reverence for God in his prayer in 1 Chronicles 29 and verse 19. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Sounds like it comes from the book of Revelation, doesn't it? Well, John's God was David's God. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens is and the earth thine is the dominion O Lord and thou dost exalt thyself as head over all This is the God with whom we have to do We behold Isaiah's reverence for God's majesty as he saw Saw the Lord sitting <clears throat> On a throne lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. He's transported into the very throne room of God. And this is what he says, this is what he sees. And when he heard the seraphs crying to one another as they flew about, crying, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And he felt the shaking of the foundations of the temple. And he watched it filling with smoke. What was the impact upon this man? He was overwhelmed with a sense of the majesty of God. Woe is his response. Woe is me, for I am ruined. A man can't see this and live. I'm ruined. I'm undone. I'm exploded. Every atom of my, my being seeks to fly apart because of what I've seen. Woe is me, for I am ruined. And then he looks inward and he looks outward because I am a man of unclean lips And I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And he says, I've lived to tell about it, and I do so right here in the sixth chapter of Isaiah. Mr. Plummer writes, Any right thoughts of God's amazing purity of nature will surely beget a pious fear of him. And that's what we read of in Isaiah's testimony. Godly fear, therefore laments our unholy familiarity with God. We want a user-friendly, marshmallow, winking grandfather in the sky, but that's not the God of the Bible. It is only right that we confess in song, We have not feared thee as we ought, nor bowed beneath thine awful eye, nor guarded deed and word and thought, remembering that God was nigh. Lord, give us faith to know thee near, and grant the grace of holy fear. Those who fear God take Him seriously. They take their sins seriously. They take holiness seriously. Because God takes these things seriously. Yet we would be wrong to conclude that godly reverence is the enemy of joy and peace. Just the opposite is the experience of God's people. You see, even as we bow before God's awful majesty, our hearts will be carried away in wonder, love, and praise. The unbelieving world cannot understand what believers know by happy experience. You see, the Lord they reject in calloused unbelief or regard with cringing dread. We worship We're to worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. It's not one or the other, it's both, you see. Another hymn writer testifies how our fear of God inspires both repentance and hope. Oh, how I fear thee, living God, with deepest, tenderest fears. And worship thee with trembling hope and penitential tears. He sees his sin, and he sees God his Savior. He sees the rainbow over the throne. He sees Jesus Christ seated in his right hand with those glorified wounds, yet rich yet visible above. The Gideon godless know nothing of the tender fears and trembling hope Of those who worship in the fear of God. This is the blessed privilege and experience of God's blood-bought people. God's greatness inspires both humiliation and exaltation. A sense of His majesty humbles us in the dust even as it lifts us up to heaven. Second, the fear of the Lord is expressed in filial, that is childlike, obedience to the revealed will of God. One precious promise of the new covenant is that God will put his fear in all the hearts of his new covenant people. Godly fear, you see, fixes our heart upon Him who calls us as His children into covenant fellowship with Him. This fear doesn't cringe, no. This fear delights in God's promises and enables persevering childlike faith in Him. Jeremiah 32, verses 38 through 40, if you have your notes. Otherwise, turn there in your Bible. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. That's covenant language. He's our God, we are his people. And I will give them one heart and one way. To what end? that they may fear Me always for their own good, and for the good of their children after them. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them, that I will not turn away from, to do them good. And I will put the fear of Me in their hearts, so that they will not turn away from Me. You see, one powerful aspect of the fear of god is that it promotes perseverance in faith it turns our heart toward god it rejoices us in the promises of god that's why we read what we do in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1 turn there if you would paul has this no doubt in mind when he writes what he does in 2 Corinthians. Beginning in verse 14 of chapter 6. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Like oil and water, they don't mix light and darkness. No, no. Or what harmony has Christ with Belial, that is the devil? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." Therefore, come out from their midst, and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. And I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Now here we come to chapter 7. The chapter and verse designations are not inspired by God, because what we read in chapter 7 and verse 1 actually should have been, I believe, Chapter 6 and verse 19. Notice, Therefore, having these promises, the ones that we just read, in verses 16 and 17. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. The first... The fruit of regeneration is the fear of God. When God replaces our heart of stone with a heart of flesh, He puts His Spirit within us. His indwelling Spirit, which is the Holy Spirit, causes us to delight in and to walk in His commandments. We show that we fear Him, By joyful obedience. Look at Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27. Ezekiel is speaking of the same new covenant realities that Jeremiah was. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. To what end? And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Before we're Christians, we think about the commandments of God and they're onerous to us. We don't like them. We hate God. We hate His commandments. But when God gives us a new heart, we delight in His commandments because we know that walking in His commandments delights God. That's the great difference. Indeed, the Holy Spirit is called the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. We read this passage oftentimes around Christmas, and rightly so. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, and the beginning of verse 3. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Well, Isaiah speaks here, of course, of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we should not be surprised that our Savior, who possessed the Holy Spirit without measure, was animated by the fear of the Lord. Jesus proved that he was qualified to be Messiah by his reverence and his concern to please his Father and by his aversion to anything that offended him. This same fear of God will animate all God's true children. Indeed, we're being conformed to the image of Christ, are we not? We should expect this since our elder brother is Jesus Christ. And we are being formed and fashioned in His image. We should know that God is our Father and that Jesus Christ our Savior. We know that He is our God. We know that Jesus Christ is our Lord when we delight in learning and doing God's will. You see, brethren, this reflects family likeness. Jesus loved to do the will of God. Jesus walked in the fear of God. Those who are... His brethren will delight in the fear of God. They will delight to do the will of God. Thirdly, the fear of the Lord produces a careful attention to pleasing God and a dread of offending Him. We've already implied this. That the fear of God is marked by a desire to please the Lord and a dread of... Of offending him. This shouldn't surprise us. This is the fruit of reverence and a plain evidence that we are indwelt by the Spirit of Christ, whose overarching purpose was to please his Father in heaven. That was the purpose of the Spirit of God in Christ. Christ demonstrated his love for and submission to the will of God, it was his meat and drink. True Christians will be jealous to promote the glory of God. Brethren, are we not taught to pray, Hallowed be thy name. If we're not committed to walking in evangelical obedience to God, we can't pray this without being hypocrites. We continue to pray it because we don't always do it. But when we pray it, do we mean that we'll do it? And if we're jealous to promote the glory of God, we do this by seeking to give evidence of the power of God's grace in our lives by living holy lives. There's only one thing that God hates, and that's sin. We show that we are true Christians by hating sin. And we show that we are jealous to please God. Now what does this mean practically? Well, first of all, we please the Lord by not dallying with sin, but resolutely turning away from it by the grace and power of His Spirit. Job 28, and verse 28. And to man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. We truly understand the Lord, we demonstrate that we fear the Lord when we turn away from evil. You see, the humble, God fearing person mortifies his sin and he mortifies his pride that would turn him away from righteousness toward evil. Proverbs 3 and verse 7 Do not be wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. One who fears the Lord knows his own moral weakness due to remaining sin, and he does not lean upon the arm of the flesh to fight against sin. His trust is in the Lord. He seeks his help. Writing to Israelites tempted to bow their knee to idols, the idols of the nations around them, the psalmist reminds them to place their trust in God who made the heavens. Psalm 115, verse 11. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. See, it's not one or the other. Those who fear the Lord, trust the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You see, our trust and fear, one encourages the other. And we come to God for help because He is our shield and great strength. We can't fear the Lord in the strength of the flesh. We fear the Lord, even as Jesus did, by the power of the Spirit. And therefore, if you fear the Lord, you lament your remaining carnality, you hate, you resist, you avoid sin. If you're a true Christian, you seek to be like Joseph, who when tempted by his boss's wife... He fled from her presence rather than to be seduced into committing sexual sin. Genesis 39 and verse 9. He says to Potiphar's wife, even as he's leaning away from her and turning toward the door. He says, there is no one greater in this house than I. And he that is your husband has not withheld anything from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil that you're proposing? You've dismissed the servants, no one's eyes are here but yours and mine, and we can delight our gazes upon each other. No, 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 none of that. How could I do this great evil and sin against God? You see, Joseph was motivated by the fear of the Lord, he was animated by. The fear of God. And therefore he fled temptation. She grabbed his cloak. He left it behind. He says, I'm out of here. I'm not looking back. If you fear the Lord, you're like Job. Oh, that we would have this description of us. Job who is blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. The fear of God made this righteous man preemptive so that he might prevent occasions of sin, especially sexual sin, even with his eyes and in his heart. Job 31 and verse 1, I have made a covenant with my eyes. I made an oath, sworn promise in the presence of God with my eyes, he says. How then could I gaze at a virgin? If you struggle with sexual sin, viewing pornography, ask God to give you this grace. And mean it, and He will. Before moving on, it's important that we understand that God defines true wisdom and understanding here. You see, not just notionally, not just intellectually, but morally. True wisdom and understanding is lived out in the practical details of our lives under the authority of the law of God before the eyes of God. When we are motivated by the fear of God, it is then that we know God truly and know things as they really are. You see, when we know truly, then we will live holily. Second, we seek to please the Lord by walking in the spirit of evangelical obedience to the law of God. Do you want to have time to turn there? You can put Romans 8 and verse 4 in your notes. But let me address you with a point of application right here. Maybe you have flirted with the notion that principled, not legalistic, principled gospel obedience To the law of God is legalism. You ever heard that? If you think this way, think again. The Bible plainly teaches love to God promotes true obedience. Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 12. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? What are your marching orders? What does your job description as my children look like? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways and love Him. Indeed, isn't that the great commandment, the first great commandment? We are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. And to love Him. Yes, God can command us holy affections. He can command us to love Him. He has every right to do that, does He not? And serve the Lord, your God. And this is an indication of love, is it not? With all your heart and with all your soul. Not just perfunctory, outward, legalistic kind of Compliance? That's not true obedience. No, but to fear Him, to walk in His ways, to love Him, to serve Him with all of the faculties of our redeemed humanity. God has saved us that we might serve Him. And we serve Him affectionately by obeying His revealed will. Loving obedience is how we walk in His ways. Cheerful, whole-souled obedience, brethren, is the language of love to God. It's not some emotive feeling that rises and falls like the tide waxes and it wanes. No, it's a principled affection to God because He has loved us that we're not going to, to live in the ways that we ordinarily did before God saved us. So Jesus and his apostles teach. John 14 and verse 15. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, Jesus said. Matthew chapter 11, verses 29 and 30. Jesus said to the weary and heavy laden, he calls them to come to him for rest. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me You see, to be a disciple of a Jewish teacher in those days was to take the yoke of that teacher upon you and to learn from him. Jesus is using that same language to speak to his audience here. Take my yoke, that's the focus, my yoke upon you and learn from me. Because unlike those who lay heavy burdens upon you and don't lift one finger to help you, no, For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. Not burden, but rest for your souls. How can that be? For my yoke is easy, and my load is light. There's still a yoke, and there's still a load. But it's easy and it's light. That's why John could write what he does in his first epistle. 1 John 5 and verse 3. For this is the love of God. That is our love for God. That we keep his commandments. And John's remembering what Jesus said. And his commandments are not burdensome. They don't weigh us down to the dust. They don't grind us down. no. To do the will of God from the heart is a great delight. The hymn writer expresses this happy truth in verse. He exhorts us to take his easy yoke and wear it. Love will make obedience sweet. Christ will give you strength to bear it while his wisdom guides your feet. Now we will return to complete our brief study of the fear of God concluding with more specific applications next Lord's Day as we look at the practical and observable impact of the fear of the Lord upon our lives and what promises belong to those who fear the Lord. But let us today conclude with a few closing observations. First of all, there is no true Christianity without the fear of God. You see, what your heart is to the life of your body, the fear of God is to the life of faith. Without it, you're dead. I'm dead. But we might have a name that we're alive, but we're dead. You see, where there is no reverence for God, there is no life in God. We're dead without the fear of God. Godly fear is not the cause of our salvation. Brethren, you know that. But it is an indispensable evidence once we are saved that we're children of God. You may have a form of religion, but it is a religion without power if you're not energized by the fear of God to walk in sweet compliance with the revealed will of God delighting to do his will because you delight in the one whose will this is. You see, if we're walking in evangelical obedience, if we're walking in the fear of God, we delight to do the will of God because it's not abstracted from the person of God. Furthermore, this fear of God is not a momentary momentary feeling, but it's a lifelong commitment and enablement. Psalm 19 and verse 9, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Secondly, there can be no fear of God without a saving knowledge of God. You cannot fear the God whom you do not know. So this sermon may sound very strange to you if you have only a vague knowledge of God and you really don't truly know Him. You know about Him, but you don't know Him. There's a quantitative difference between the two. You come to know God only by entrusting your dead and guilty soul to the life-giving, pardoning mercies of God in Jesus Christ. Only as you know God will you be taught the fear of God, John 17 and verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know Thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom Thou hast sent. So let me ask you this morning. Do you know the one true and living God? Do you know Jesus Christ, whom He has sent? Do you possess eternal life? Can you say, once I was dead, but now I, was al- now I am alive? you say, once I was blind, but now I see? Can you say, I'm not what I once was, but I am what I am by the grace of God? Can you say that Jesus Christ is the beginning, middle, and end of all of my hope? For my acceptance with God, for the fulfillment of all the promises of God. Can you say that? In Him is all my hope. He is my hope. Can you say that? We know nothing of the fear of God if we don't have that hope. Finally, there can be no saving knowledge of God without trusting the Son of God. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And dear friend, you meet Jesus in the Bible. He calls you to come to Him that you might have life and salvation. And only in Him Are you taught the fear of God? So there's a word for saint and a word for the sinner here those that that don't know God and those that do know God. Oh, may this be for you if you don't know the Lord, the day of salvation. May God turn your cringing fear of him into a delightful, filial fear of him go from being an enemy to being a friend by the grace of God. Oh, may He grant you saving faith this day. Open your eyes to see the kingdom of God. Grant you the evangelical gifts of faith and repentance to answer His call. Come to me and I will in no wise cast you out. May this be the day of salvation. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and we ask that you would take these stammering statements from your Word, and anything that was said that is not in accordance with your blessed truth, or anything that was stated, what was misunderstood, that was true, that you would you would drive these wrong notions out of our mind, and where the truth was spoken, that accords. With Jesus Christ, we pray that you would powerfully impress these things upon our hearts for our encouragement, for our conviction, for our admonition, for our counsel, for our warning, for our comfort. Lord, you know our hearts. You know where we are before you. And we pray that you would open the casket, casks of wine and oil and you'd pour them into our hearts that sin might be bubbled up and it might be confessed at the throne of Christ this day and those of your people who are struggling with sin and by your grace enabled to walk in the fear of God pour in that oil that brings healing and brings comfort and consolation so Lord act according to your wisdom and grace and power and accomplish for us what we cannot for ourselves, and visit us with your power and your presence this day. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.